fans, it's Amber here, and welcome to this week's Tiny Topics. So for all of you Molly fans, I'm sorry to disappoint, but tonight you're all mine. This week's Tiny Topic is going to be about confessions and why they're used, mainly false confessions and how they kind of sneak their way into a courtroom. The influence of false confessions on a jury can greatly affect the outcome of a case. So these are very, very important, especially if somebody was coerced into confessing to a crime that they did not commit or even had the possibility of committing. So a confession is typically a detailed statement. It's usually oral or written. Um, And it's when an individual is admitting to committing a transgression. So these are often declaring guilt for a crime, and it's the government's best way to convict defendants. True confessions alleviate the pressures on the overburdened criminal justice system by encouraging guilty pleas, so that way they can speed up the process of justice. When we have these confessions in a criminal case, it seems like it's an easy and clean way to solve them, However, there are so many different ways that an interrogator may influence the suspect's behavior that will lead to a false confession. Historically, these false confessions and coercion have gone hand in hand when a suspect is being forced, threatened, harmed, or even promised immunity if they would just confess to a crime that they did not commit. For some, these are interrogation tactics to kind of help, you know, bring the truth come to light just because an interrogator has a hunch that they're acting on. But for others, it could have pushed an innocent individual into a false confession to avoid further conflict and just simply comply with the officer. There are three types of false confessions. So there's voluntary, compliant, and internalized. So voluntary confessions are when an innocent individual is feeling guilty for something that they have done in the past. Um, For instance, if they have done something wrong or they're protecting somebody else who has done something wrong, this would be an example of a voluntary false confession. You see this all the time in, you know, TV shows. I'm pretty sure there's like a dozen different types of law and order episodes where a parent is like protecting their child that committed a murder by accident or sometimes even, you know, on purpose. And it's not always just with children. It's just anybody who feels like they need to protect another individual by confessing to a crime that they did not commit. The second type of false confession is a compliant confession, and these are when individuals are coerced into them by an interrogator just based off of their own tactics. The third one is called an internalized false confession, and these are kind of when innocent suspects are very susceptible to interrogation techniques, and they don't realize that these techniques are really what is creating false memories, and they're kind of molding their minds into thinking that maybe they could have done this. Now, the fault does not always lie in the hands of the interrogator. There's so many other aspects that kind of help juries to believe that the confessions were true and voluntary. 
An example of one of these um, aspects that help jury believe that a confession is true and voluntary is called the camera perspective. So regardless of the type of confession, a judge has to determine whether or not that statement is even admissible in court to be evaluated by a jury. So there's been some articles that suggest that evaluations of videotaped confessions could also be altered um, by the changes in the camera perspective used at the initial recording. So if a camera is pointed just at the suspect, as opposed to just, you know, both the interrogator and the suspect, juries are often led to believe that those confessions are more voluntary and that that suspect is more likely to be guilty. So unfortunately, many of these recorded confessions are only pointed at the suspect, which raises concerns about how many individuals have submitted a false confession. Camera angles are aimed solely at the suspect that only show their emotions and gestures, so knowing the mannerism of both parties can actually help judges and juries make an unbiased decision of guilt. Experts have found that individuals that are stuck in various decision-making processes, that those decision-making processes are very taxing to the mind. So this can influence the individual on whether or not they should even speak to, you know, somebody like a police officer or an interrogator, or if they should invoke their right to an attorney. So most people in this point will only think about the short-term consequences and actions such as, if I confess to this crime that I did not commit, then I can stop talking to this person. Or if I confess, then I can leave and I can go home. Most people should be thinking long-term though. So if I confess to a crime that I did not commit, I will be wrongfully convicted of this crime. There is a popular interrogation method used by law enforcement officers, and this is called the read technique. So what that is, is that it trains the officers to first ask a non-accusatory question in order to determine whether or not their suspect is lying about the involvement in the crime. So if this officer believes that that suspect is somehow involved, then an accusatory interrogation then takes place. So... At this stage, that's when the officer starts asking questions, believing that that suspect is already guilty, and the goal of this interrogation is to admit guilt. Now, one of the most well-known false confession cases is, of course, the New York Central Park jogger case. So this is the Central Park Five guys. In 1989, a female jogger was found brutally attacked and raped in Central Park. So this crime actually caused an uproar in New York City and the police were scrutinized and were so under pressure. They were under so much pressure to find these these guys responsible. Uh, five youths aged 14 to 16 at the time were seen in the park that night and they were immediately arrested for the crime and interrogated um, so under the intense police questioning four of the boys admitted to their roles in the crime and implicated the others but the youths also gave conflicting accounts and none of them matched the dna evidence so they just used these read techniques the camera angles they used everything against these five young men to interrogate them and coerce them into confessing into this crime because they were under so much pressure to find those responsible. Each of these men spent between 5 to 15 years in prison for this crime before they were finally exonerated. 
Now, there is a Netflix uh, movie out there. It's called When They See Us, and it does tell the important story of the Central Park Five. So, I highly, highly recommend it. Another example of a false confession is from the Pizza Hut murder. Now, this happened in 1988 when a woman named Nancy was found raped and murdered at her Pizza Hut where she worked in Austin, Texas. A co-worker named Chris pled guilty to the murder while his friend Richard was convicted of the rape. Now, Chris confessed to the murder and implicated his friend Richard because it was later discovered that he has been coerced by the interrogators. The only forensic evidence linking Richard to the crime scene was a single pubic hair that was found in the restaurant, which for one, I don't know how that fucking happens in the first place. Like that's very disgusting and it kind of makes me wonder like clearly what else is in a fucking pizza hut or just any restaurant in general. Like that just, it freaks me out just a little bit just reading this case, but we clearly run the risk of finding pubic hair apparently in restaurants. Um, Now, although semen evidence was collected, um, there was no DNA analysis. So they collected the semen, but they never tested it. And they never tested it to the two men who were convicted of this murder and rape. Um, Years later, a man actually wrote letters from prison claiming that he was the actual murderer of the Pizza Hut case. And they finally decided to test the DNA from the crime scene. And it was a match of this man. So the DNA of Richard and Chris were essentially excluded um, from their evidence. And after 12 years in prison, they were finally exonerated. Now, this story does have a sad ending because while in prison, Richard was severely beaten by other inmates and suffered permanent brain damage. Now, this was all because he was convicted of a crime that he did not commit from a coerced statement in an interrogation that his friend made implicating him of this crime. So he wasn't even there when this crime happened and it ended in brain damage. That is insane to me. And it definitely shows how powerful these coerced statements can can be on one's case. Now, these false confessions are not always caused by coercion. Sometimes they are voluntary. So a good example of that is going to be the confession killers. Um, But I feel like that is just super basic. So I'm going to get into two different voluntary cases before I let you go for this tiny topic. So a good example of a voluntary case is Laverne Pavlinak. So this happened in 1990 where she confessed to killing and murdering I just said killing and murdering as if those are two different fucking things when they are clearly the same thing. Um, But she confessed to murdering a woman in Oregon with her boyfriend. So they were eventually convicted and sentenced to prison. However, five years later, this man named Keith Hunter Jesperson confessed to a series of murders, including that of the woman in Oregon. So it was later found that Laverne 
was just so obsessed with the details of the crime during the interrogation by police that she wanted to confess to get out of the abusive relationship with her boyfriend. It was also stated that her boyfriend also confessed just to avoid the death penalty. So these are really good examples of voluntary confessions just to protect oneself, regardless if it was from an abusive relationship or capital punishment. Lastly, for a voluntary confession is that of John Mark Carr. So this is actually fairly recent. It happened in 2006, where he confessed to the murder of a young American girl. Now, he was actually obsessed with every detail of her murder, and in his confession, he claimed that he had drugged, sexually assaulted, and then accidentally killed her. So his confession actually led to him being extradited from Thailand, um, but his account did not match the details of the case, and his DNA did not match that of which was found at the crime scene. His wife and brother also said that he was home in another state at the time of the murder and has never been to Colorado where the crime took place. Now, some experts believe that John Mark Carr only confessed to get attention because he was a widely known pedophile that used to get off on child porn and he also faced charges in California for it. He was also married to underage girls in the 1980s and 90s. In fact, his second wife, Laura, was only 16 when they got married. So this voluntary confession was not to protect oneself, but to get recognition, which is another reason why false confessions are very, very intimidating in the courtroom because you never know, regardless if this person is you know, uh, trying to get convicted of a crime or if they're confessing based on a coerced statement. All in all, these false confessions and coercion and interrogation techniques could be the make it or break it point in any case. Well, that is all I had for you today. Um, I hope you guys really do enjoy these little tiny topic episodes. We will be providing more of them. They're just little snippets of random facts or things that we think are going to be important for either future or past cases. So I hope you enjoy and we'll see you next week.